You are Locked On Heat, your daily Miami Heat podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, Heat Nation. Welcome to your daily Miami Heat podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, the only podcast that breaks down every game, news item, rumor, and more. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on Himalaya. My name is David Ramil. After a soul-crushing loss on the road to the Cleveland Cavaliers, where the Heat squandered a 19-point lead to start the fourth quarter, the team returned home to Miami to face a Minnesota Timberwolves team that has won just four games since the start of 2020. The game was back and forth for about 40 minutes of play, with neither team really being able to break free of the other, until the Heat built a 12-point cushion midway through the fourth quarter. They actually held on to that lead with about four and a half minutes left to the, to the game, and Jimmy Butler, in his first game back after missing two games due to personal reasons, committed three turnovers over the next four minutes. No one on the team was able to defend a single Wolves player, and the offense completely fell apart. Jimmy actually hit two free throws to give the Heat a one-point lead after actually being down. But Minnesota scored the last four points of the game and wrapped up the night with a 22-7 run and a 129-126 win over Miami who suffered their fourth loss of the season at home. So the big story of the game is that clearly Miami is struggling on almost every facet. You could say that it was the last few minutes of play that really stood out, and obviously they did squander that lead, as I mentioned before in the recap. But in all fairness, they actually were playing pretty badly defensively all game long. They gave up 27 points to D'Angelo Russell, who was just acquired the Golden State Warriors. He seemed to catch a little bit of fire there, finished 9 of 18 from the floor, 7 of 14 from three-point range. And I think that's the bigger indicator right there is that while the team, the, the Timberwolves, only shot 37% from three-point range, they, the Heat do wind up giving an inordinate amount of three-pointers. Uh, we've seen that on occasion to Trey, Trey Young, again, in the Atlanta loss. We saw that um, from Kevin Porter Jr. in the Cleveland loss, and we saw it again tonight from D'Angelo Russell. The Heat just, by nature of their defense, because they're switching, because they uh, sag a little bit on defense, they don't press as much as they should, they wind up giving the, uh, a lot of space to three-point shooters, and D'Angelo doesn't need a lot of time to get that shot off, and he looked pretty fluid doing so. Again, 7-14 to 14 from three-point range. That's pretty damn good for a a large number of shots that he was taking. So um, that's the problem. Uh, Juancho Hernan Gomez, who had just been acquired from the Denver Nuggets, also shot well from three-point range. Three of five for a big man to hit that kind of, uh, to hit with that kind of range. He's not a solid three-point shooter. He's okay. He's capable. But um, they also wind up giving up 13 points to a backup point guard who had spent most of his uh, tenure with in the G League, uh, you know he, he just wasn't. He's not a you know steady NBA player, and yet Jordan McLaughlin finished with 13 points, uh, you know, and, and including the go-ahead bucket uh, in the final moments of the game there. So, as far as the Heat are concerned, I'm telling you that it, it just they did not play a good game overall. They struggled mightily on defense. They were giving up a lot of shots. Their offense wasn't the problem. I mean, they, they shot 40, almost 43% from three-point range, 11 of 26 overall, 41 of 78, 78 from the field. They shot well to the line. They took 43 free throw attempts. I mean, you can't, with Jimmy back in the lineup and Bam having a career night, uh, 
as far as free throw attempts. And, you know, they, they shot a combined 26 free throws between the two of them, more than the whole Timberwolves team. That wasn't an issue. They were getting to the line. They were scoring well. They shot well. They didn't take a lot of shots. 78 field goal attempts to 91 for the Timberwolves. So maybe that's you know, part of the problem is that they play a, a very slow pace offensively, they, a very deliberate pace as far as the, the getting their shots up. But defensively, they just they have had a number of issues there. And uh, there are a lot of different factors. One, schematic. Two, personnel, part of which is you know incorporating new players, something that I really think is not necessarily hurt any kind of chemistry or anything like that, but it's just these players, particularly Andre Iguodala, uh, he's trying to figure himself out, you know, after missing most of the year uh, in a contract dispute and after having been traded to the Memphis Grizzlies, you know. So he's still, he, he is the version of a player that, that we would normally see in early October, you know. When, when teams are, are going through the preseason, you're kind of working these kinks out and you're going to training camp, things of that sort. Like the version of Andre that we're seeing right now, although he's in great shape and he's, he's obviously kept in great shape well, during his hiatus, is not the version that we expect to see in April and May if the Heat are able to actually stay in the playoffs until May. The little story of the game is James Johnson's return. Uh, John, James was... Uh, at shoot-around this morning, I was one of uh, a few reporters there who got a chance to talk to him, and uh, as I tweeted out, I'm not sure if you saw the tweet or not, but uh, it was good to see James because he was very positive about his time in Miami. He spoke very well about Pat Riley and Eric Spolstra and giving him the opportunity to help resurrect his career. That was the terminology he used after you know being in Memphis and Sacramento and then Toronto and not really having a clear place in the league, he came to Miami and really discovered a better version of himself there. And while it may have ended in bad terms with the team, he was very optimistic and, and positive and, and had nothing but great things to say about the franchise and spoke very highly of his teammates, including Jimmy Butler, who he said was one of the great uh, greatest teammates he's ever had. Uh, so much to the surprise of the Timberwolves reporters around there, or the Minnesota Timberwolves reporters that were listening to that quote. So, um, he actually had a pretty good night as well. He's been on a tear in Minnesota, and that's pretty understandable considering his skill set and one, the fact that Carl Anthony Towns has missed an amount of time there. Um, and they're not playing particularly well. They have not won much, and they're not playing for anything in particular. And so James is taking advantage of that opportunity. He played 23 minutes against the Heat, finished with 11 points, 5 of 11 shooting, uh, missed all three of his three-point attempts, but he also had a pretty good all-around game, four assists, a steal, two blocks, five rebounds turnovers, so it was a pretty healthy slice of the James Johnson experience, but uh, the takeaway from that was that he's happy in Minnesota, he's trying to make the most of that opportunity there, and his team came away with a win, which is something that they have not been able to do very often of late, so. Uh, my three takeaways of the game, Andre Iguodala is struggling, as I mentioned before, um, he's not in great playing condition. I think he's a little step slow. He does seem a little out of position defensively, which is not the kind of version of Iguodala that we were expecting to get. I mean, if you're looking at the player that we had seen in the Golden State Warriors over the last couple of years, uh, he is not that version yet. 
I don't know that he will be at that point. I mean, the hope is that he'll be able to get back into shape, that even at his age, that he'll still be able to reach another level this season. Maybe that's optimistic, but I think that was the expectation when the Heat acquired him uh, via trade this year. So they're looking to have a competent veteran who can do things defensively. And while he struggled defensively, he did have some nice opportunities offensively. I mean, he played 20 minutes and finished with seven points. Hit all three of his shots, including a clutch three in the corner there that helped Miami build that 12-point cushion I mentioned before. So he's... It's a mixed bag. It's not, uh, you know, one way or the other as far as he is struggling. He does not look great. And the on-off numbers suggest that the Heat are worse with him on the floor by a wide margin. There's still room for improvement. He's showing flashes that he's more capable uh, offensively. And he had a good night scoring-wise. Hopefully he can continue to be a little bit more consistent on that end. And he can continue to make some strides defensively because they're counting on him uh, and they're counting on Jay Crowder also and he is my second takeaway which is you know Crowder is regressing a little bit Uh, as hot as his start was when he was first acquired by the team he is tapered off pretty substantially finished just two of nine in 32 minutes of play including one of seven from three-point range this was five points overall nine rebounds so he was active and contributing also had three steals he's been very solid defensively he had a couple of missteps, wasn't quite sure where to be as far as his position is concerned. I see that from a number of guys. Like one time, Jimmy uh, picked up a switch defensively as there was a pick-and-roll situa- situation there, and then Bam stayed with his man, uh, and Jimmy went on to Bam's man as well and then left the, the, the ball handler completely open, and they got to the rim pretty easily. So. You'll you'll see that on occasion, even with players who have you know played a number of games together, like Jimmy and Bam. Obviously, you're going to see some missteps and miscalculations there defensively. Crowder is overall a pretty good defender, a willing defender, able to switch onto a number of different players, and we see that on, on more than one occasion throughout the game that he is he picks up ball handlers, he picks up bigs, he'll do whatever it takes, and so that's good to see that kind of effort and consistency from him defensively, and hopefully he'll be able to continue improving. The three-point shot, it's a good one from him. You, you want him to be able to hit it down at least at 30-something percent, not one of seven as he was tonight, but uh, that's to be expected from him. You know, He, he was not a lights-out shooter in Memphis. He's had up-and-down games throughout the course of his career. I imagine he'll wind up being somewhere in the middle, not quite shooting 80% the way he was before and not quite shooting you know, 15% the way he did tonight. So uh, hopefully he'll wind up somewhere in the middle, around 35 to 40%, and still a, con- a legitimate three-point threat that can help your team. Jimmy Butler in the clutch just isn't working. Uh, that's my third takeaway of the game. The expectation was that Jimmy was going to be able to take over games, that he was going to do what he had done in Philadelphia last year, Minnesota before that, and just be a clutch scorer. But he has not been that. We've seen him on occasion get to the line more than anything else. But his three-point shooting has been non-existent all year. His mid-range game has not been as steady as it has been in other stops. And relying on his ability to get to the free-throw line is not solution to Miami's late game offense because although it worked on the second to last heat possession when they needed a bucket and when they were down one after McLaughlin had scored that go ahead layup Jimmy bowled his way to the layup 
pulled his way to the rim, rather. I think there was, I want to say, seven seconds left in the game. They inbound the ball, and Jimmy took a cross court without calling a timeout. I don't think they had any timeouts left, and they wanted to be able to get to the to the rim as quickly as possible. And so he initiated the offense. He drove the length of the court and took it to the rim, maybe looking to get a, a foul call, maybe looking to, to actually score. You can never really tell with him. Either way, he was met at the rim by three defenders, and D'Angelo Russell, Jake Lehman, and I think Malik Beasley all defended that shot pretty well and were actually able to block Jimmy uh, cleanly, sent the ball out of bounds, and uh, Minnesota retained the possession there. So it was, uh, oh, I'm sorry. They blocked the shot, and then Bam and Abayo was uh, able to commit a foul, and that's what sent Jake Lehman to the line for two free throws to, to steal the game. So they blocked Jimmy on that that last attempt, and uh, not a good shot from him. Uh, a couple games ago, his last game after missing the last two for personal reasons was against Atlanta, and obviously he took a desperation three-point shot that did not fall. Not a good shot. He's gotten a lot of criticism. I don't want criticism directed at Jimmy's way, but I am somewhat surprised that he's not been able to be a little bit more consistent of a threat in the clutch moments because that was that's what he's done. That's what he's done throughout his career, even in Chicago, when he was first becoming the superstar version of himself. That's what he did. He, he was able to take big shots and hit those, uh, and he did it, obviously, in Minnesota and Philadelphia. Not so much in Miami, so I, I don't know what's the situation. I don't know if he's hurt. I don't know if there's a lot going on. We don't know what those personal reasons are. We're not going to find out, uh, and I don't think anybody has the right to dig too deeply about that, either from media like myself or from people on NBA Twitter or basketball Twitter, just curious about what's going on uh, with Jimmy and his personal life. You don't have a right to know that. None of us do. And so we only find out what they want to share with us. And while we can ask, we don't have uh, a right to press them on it, and, and we won't. So hopefully everything is okay at home with him, and everything is going to be okay on the court. But for now, he's struggling in that regard, and that was not the expectation from him. He was supposed to be the guy who was going to be uh, the leader. There is somebody else who can step up in those kinds of situations, and I'll get into that and some more thoughts on the heat loss and answer some of your questions in the next segment. You're listening to Locked on Heat. If you've been a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you've heard all the great advertisers that work with Locked on to reach sports fans. But what you may not know is that Locked on Heat is a great way for your local business to reach passionate Heat fans just like you. Unlike any other podcast, Locked on gives your local company the unique ability to reach local podcast listeners. Not just any type of podcast listener, but a Locked on podcast listener. If your company wants to connect with Heat fans of a predominantly male audience that is well-educated with disposable income, let's put your company right here on this Locked on podcast. Local fans love to support local businesses. So text the word advertising to the number 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com slash advertising and let us know who you are. We'll get our team to help your team achieve Locked On advertising success. Once again, text the word advertising to the number 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com slash advertising. We look forward to hearing from you. Not a lot of questions from y'all tonight. Pretty understandable. Uh, this is by far the worst stretch of the season following the All-Star break, which was a time of success. 
and great offensive. Uh, it was a bad loss to the Hawks immediately after the All-Star weekend, then a win over the Cavs in which they retired Dwayne Wade's jersey to help kind of balance things out before an overtime loss to that same Cleveland team, and then, of course, tonight's loss to the Wolves. So there is a lot of despair from the fan base, uh, but not from Eric Spolstra. If you saw his post-game comments, he seems, at least outwardly, he's pissed off, he's frustrated, he's disappointed, without a doubt. And I don't think he has any clear idea as to what the situation or what the problem is. But he's trying to stay positive. He's trying to stay optimistic. And that's a good sign. I have to be honest with you. I don't want... There is a tendency for Heat fans to want to commiserate when they're all feeling miserable. You know, misery loves company, as the expression goes. So you want to see Eric Spolster pulling his hair out, clutching the sides of his head, and, and look like like he's pissed off to the, to the nth degree. But that's not what players want. They don't want a player that looks so desperate. One of the biggest criticisms of Stan Van Gundy, who's doing a fantastic job as a commentator, and I know a lot of people have... have you know, seen him lately and love the way he breaks down the game. Never question about whether or not Stan was a good coach and a uh, capable analyst. But one of the co- problems with, with Stan, from Shaquille O'Neal's perspective anyway, was that Stan Van Gundy was just constantly, constantly riding an emotional higher low. He always wore his emotions on his sleeve. You could always tell what was going on. There was always a sense of desperation from him. And he just couldn't absorb it. At some point, you just kind of re- have to remain a little bit more even keel. That's something that Phil Jackson, Pat Riley... Look, Riley was as emotional as anybody, but he wasn't going to just hang his head after a, a stupid loss in February. Yeah, this is a bad one, but this isn't the kind of loss that's going to sink your season. There is still a place for this team. They can still go deep into the playoffs. Does it look that way right now, following the two most recent losses and that loss against the Hawks, the bad stretch on the road? Look, this team does not look great. Maybe I'm just being a little bit too optimistic, but I still think that they can make some room there. I, I think they can still make some damage, rather, in the playoffs. Now, as far as Spo is concerned, the team's having practice tomorrow, so he's going to be able to take it out on them regardless. Um, on Thursday, they'll be going through a rather rigorous film session and practice, I would imagine, and they'll try to get the new guys to kind of step up and, and understand their role a little bit more completely. And I think that's a big part of it. You know, the incorporation of new players like this is uh, a challenge. You know, you had guys on this team, Injustice and Dion and James, that whether they were playing or not, at least there was a clearly defined role. They understood what was going on. That changes with a trade like this, and, and you know, Iguodala has his system, and what Steve Kerr was doing in Golden State. Uh, you know, Jay has been with the Memphis Grizzlies. He was with the Utah Jazz. He's been with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Think about it. over the last three seasons, he's been with these three different teams. You know, that's very difficult to find that kind of consistency. And so he does what he does, but at some point you're going to have an issue there. You know, you're going to have a hard time trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, particularly defensively. And uh, there's also this question that comes from Sergio, which brings up a really good point. He asks, is it time to talk about how much the Heat miss Myers Leonard and Tyler Hero? This slide coincides with their absence. And I think Sergio brings up a really good point, something that I think I've brought up before on this podcast, which is that Myers, for all of his struggles defensively, and that's pretty obvious, he is, however, a very clear voice. 
He's also a guy who stretched the floor at a very high level. He can pull down rebounds and provide a big body, if not necessarily an active rim protector. He is a, a player that can block shots and alter shots at the rim, if nothing else. And defensively, he is so vocal and so loud, as we all know, and he calls out what everybody's supposed to do. He sees things. He has a great eye for you know what, what the opponent is doing. That that makes the, everybody's job so much easier defensively. And I think that's a huge factor, something that's completely missing. As far as Tyler is concerned, well, it's the flip side of that. You missed Tyler Hero's offense because tonight against the Wolves, you know he would have gone out there and tried to hit a shot. You know he would have been able to get it. His gravity, getting to the rim, or particularly when he's facing the floor from, you know, God knows what, 25 20 to 30 feet, you have to you have to stay on him. He changes things for an opponent's defense because he is so good from the perimeter, and he can put the ball down so easily and so well. Duncan is going to come off screen after screen after screen, and he's going to get, you know, he's going to need a millisecond to get his shot off. That's great. It doesn't collapse defenses the same way. It's more of a tertiary kind of function on offense. Like, I don't think it's the primary thing that you're looking to do on offense. It's more like decoy plays where he's just kind of working off screens and, you know, he may not be the the the, the where the, the ball is primarily supposed to go to as far as the scoring opportunity is concerned. But with Tyler, he has the ball in his hands. He's creating the shot opportunities for himself. And so he throws off defenses because he has that incredible, he has a really, really good handle. He can dribble the ball so well. And he can get to the rim in a way that Duncan does not. Duncan, I mean, 90% of his shots are off three-point shots. So, I mean, that you know what's coming from him. With Tyler, it's much more of a mixed bag, and that throws off your defense. So it's easy for him to get his shots off or... If he collapses the defense onto him, then he can look to make a play and, and pass it off to somebody else. And so I think you're totally missing, to Sergio's point, what Tyler brings on offense just as much as you're missing what Leonard brings on defense. So uh, definitely something to consider. I did not expect either of them to miss this kind of time. I thought with the all-star break that we'd get them back a lot sooner. Um, you know, as, as Tyler mentioned, during the all-star break, if you recall the podcast that I recorded from Chicago, he kind of inadvertently admitted that the team doctors and, and he actually expected to be out until as soon as the playoffs maybe. Like he, he might not have been back for until like right before um, mid-April. And if that was the case, uh, you know, that was a little bit more severe than we had anticipated. Because, I mean, the day that his quote-unquote injury, I don't know if there was anything specific that happened, he was walking around the, practice, the, the locker room absolutely fine. No boot, no nothing. And then all of a sudden things progressively worsened. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but he has not been available, obviously. So you hope he can come back. He's 19. He's young. You hope he can bounce back and become an immediate con- contributor. You know he wants to get out there. Myers is walking around without a boot already, so hopefully within a week or two he'll be available to play. As for Tyler, I haven't seen him out around, so I'm not sure exactly what the situation is. I'm sure he's probably continuing to work somehow, some way, and uh, hopefully he'll be on the floor soon. Kevin writes in, what the hell is going on? Was the early part of the season a mirage? Bam and Jimmy literally lost the game at the end on defense and offense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of frustration, as I mentioned before. Um, look, Steve Kolakidis 
just asked a question also on Twitter, which I'm reading at the moment. And he says, what is wrong with the team at the moment? We have lost 11 of our last nine, and those losses don't all come against good teams. You're right. I mean, it's it's going to happen. I think there's a lot of, of you know, something I mentioned uh, following the, the Cavs loss. I think the early part of the season was in a mirage. But if you recall, that version of that team was a little different than the version we've seen now. They were defending the three-point shot at a very high rate. They were knocking down three-pointers at a very high rate, something they're still doing. But they were also moving the ball exceptionally well. You remember those first early games, that taste of what this team could be. When Jimmy was out over the first four games of the season and Justice was the point guard, and they had like you know, a million assists on every converted field goal, this version of that team with Bam passing the ball so well, with everybody in the roster passing the ball so well, we have not seen that kind of fluid offense. It's gone to a much more ISO-heavy offense. It's relied much more on Duncan Robinson um, as he's trying to become the the, you know, the three-point shooter that he's, that he's become you know, and that you've come to rely on. The offense has, in my opinion, got a little bit more stagnant, and I think that's uh, the reality of this season. I think teams frequently go through these kind of different iterations over the course of a season, and so you know, other teams can begin to prepare for them. I also think that right now, you start the season at a blank slate, and every team has these expectations. Look at the Minnesota Timberwolves. They started off the year 7-3, and 7-4, and four, I believe. Either way, having a pretty high level of success. How does a team win 7 of their first 10 or 11 games and then lose their next 30 out of 40? That's what we're looking at here, basically, is that they, they've played another 40-some-odd games, and they've lost 30 of those, if not more. You know, something starts to set in there. They, they you know, a player goes down to injury, and then losing kind of breeds its own sense of loss there. Like, you, when you get into that same rut of losing and losing and losing, it's hard for teams to get out of it. I mean, having covered Orlando for a number of years there, I will say that if nothing else, Steve Clifford has created a climate there where the players have accepted winning and actually look to win. Because for the most part, for years there, they would start off very hot, and then all of a sudden they would go through what everybody knew that was going to go through. They were going to go through a December swoon where they were going to lose a lot of games. And then from that point forward, this team just was not, that team was not capable of winning anything. And so... That sense of that loss just creates its own bubble there where you can't seem to get out of it. It's like a prison that you can't escape. And I think for teams like the Cavs and the Timberwolves and even the Hawks that aren't playing for anything, I think a lot of a lot of that is that at this point in the season, there are no expectations. You're free to do whatever the hell you want to. So why not try as hard as you can? You know, I mean, maybe that doesn't make sense, and, and it's a little late, and forgive me if I'm not making this point as clearly as I, I should, but I think teams are playing a little bit more freely at this point, even the losing ones. You've heard the term spoiler before when it comes to these losing teams that always knock off a, a team's chances at the playoffs or cost the team home court advantage in the playoffs, things of that sort. And I think it's easier for these teams now. It's, it's one thing to have to establish yourself early on in the season where that you know you have a precedent of being a good team and you want to continue to build on that over the course of the season because you have legitimate title aspirations or at least playoff aspirations. For a team like the Timberwolves, they were kind of nebulous. 
you weren't really sure if they were going to make the playoffs. You kind of thought maybe they could. They had enough there. Um, you know, with Carl Anthony Towns, obviously you think that's enough talent to really get to that point. You weren't sure what you were getting out of Andrew Wiggins. Look at it, Wiggins. He started off great this year and kind of tapered off, and now he's kind of thriving again in Golden State. The point is I think you just now in February there are no expectations. You know where the bad teams are. They don't care. They're not playing for anything. They're not trying to outright, you know, outright tank the season either, and so they're just going to try and, and occasionally – put forth their best effort. And I think we saw that in Cleveland the other night. Like, that's a Cleveland team that probably shouldn't have had any right winning uh, against Miami or against any team. And then all of a sudden they just played loosely, felt at ease, taking shots that maybe they normally wouldn't take. You know, a lot of that has to do with not having the coach that they've had all season long either, John Beeline, who was probably not the ideal coach for the Cavaliers or for any NBA team given his lack of experience at this level. Anyway, that's too much about losing teams and everything else. The Heat have to get back on track. I got another question here, but I should save that to the, the last segment because uh, I don't know if I necessarily want to get into the player of the game or anything like that. There's no real point here. So I'll save this next question for the next segment. You're listening to Locked on Heat. Listen to and subscribe to new and archived episodes of Locked on Heat on Himalaya as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you're on iTunes, stop by, leave a rating and review, especially if it's a good one. This last question comes from Pilot OSCR, and he asks, Is it time to question moving justice? Because I get he wasn't happy, and it was to get rid of JJ and Dion's contracts. But Iggy hasn't looked like himself, and Solomon Hill isn't playing much. Do you see them making any more changes? Do you see the Heat making any more changes, especially if they're looking at the buyout market? Or are they maybe rethinking the trade for Justice and J.J.'s defense and ball handling? So I don't think the Heat is one to often uh, question their decision. They move forward pretty calculatedly and decisively whenever they, they, they finally come to the conclusion, we're ready to move on from this player. If you look at, um, you know, Justice's behavior over the last few weeks before he was traded, there was the ongoing saga of his back issues. Um, There was also potentially some ego issues. Just earlier today, Barry Jackson of the Miami Herald uh, reported that, or was commenting rather on an athletic I'm sorry, a story on the from The Athletic about why the Grizzlies like Justice Winslow and his acquisition there because they think that he is a player without ego that can fit in pretty well because of his high-level defense, etc. All the reasons that we like him for here. And then Jackson kind of questions the ego part of it because he says, and he reports, that team sources have told him that even with Jimmy and Bam thriving this year, Justice had always expected to be the face of the franchise, or at least a face of the franchise moving forward, and that wasn't going to be the case with Jimmy and Bam on this roster. And so he kind of, I guess, I don't know, thought he had he was a, a, a bigger, more important part of this team's future. Um, it didn't seem like that was the case. Uh, you know, obviously, he, he started for most of the season earlier on, and then um, he was injured, and I thought he would be coming off the bench when he did wind up playing again in that one game. He, he did come off the bench, and so the expectation was that he was probably going to have a lower, lesser role than, than what he expected and wanted to, and so maybe he was questioning 
uh, his place in this team. And, and I think as far as Johnson and Dion are concerned, they the coaching staff and front office just kind of fell out of flavor with them. I, I don't think there was anything about their contracts. I, I don't think the Heat don't care how much they pay you as long as you're a Heat guy. Like they, they, I mean, look at Udonis Haslam continuing to get paid regardless of how much or how little he plays. But he is the Heat guy through and through. He works hard, he shuts his mouth, and he does what is asked of him constantly. And I think that's a huge thing for this Heat coaching staff in front office. Dion, not so much. He questioned the coaching staff. He questioned the front office. Uh, he may or may not have reported the camp out of shape. Johnson may or may not have reported the camp out of shape. And, and I think when you're awarded these contracts, the feeling from Riley in the front office is that you better do everything you can to live up to them, and you better not blow it in one way or another. And that's that's the feeling that they got from Johnson and Waiters, that they had not lived up to the contracts that they were given. And so that's why they were looking to be moved. Not because of the contract or the amount of money they were going to get paid this year, but rather because they just they were no longer Heat guys. So I don't think that they're questioning it too much. As far as the buyout market is concerned, there aren't a lot of great options out there. I don't know what kind of player you'd be looking for. It seems like that changes a lot. You know, some people want a, a wing player that can defend at a high level, despite the acquisition of Iguodala and Crowder. Uh, some people want a ball handler. There are options in that regard. There's Isaiah Thomas, who's continued to struggle after his uh, career-threatening injury a few years ago. There's also Tyler Johnson, who was in attendance at Miami's, uh, you know, on a Wednesday night, watching Miami lose to Minnesota. He's a good friend of. James Johnson, obviously, as well as a number of players still on this key roster, he's a possibility. He could sign a minimum veteran for the remainder of the season and play and contribute. Uh, you know, he's a guy who understands everything that Eric Spolster would want out of him, so he's a guy who can create offense for himself. He's a bench player, but he would probably accept a lower role right now. He's gotten paid. I don't think that he has a lot to prove left. And I, personally, I think it would be a great success story to bring him back. I saw a lot of people kind of saying, no... They'll keep him off my team, things of this sort, and I, I don't, I don't get that response. Like, I, I don't know what the the issue is with with, you know, Tyler. To me, he did everything that you could have hoped for him. He was getting paid too much money, but that had nothing to do with Tyler or his skill set. That had everything to do with Mickey Harrison and Pat Riley throwing too much money at him to make up for having lost Dwayne Wade and wanting to prove that they take care of their guys, that if you come into Miami and work hard like Tyler did, you're going to get rewarded, which is why they did the same thing the exact next year with Dion Waiters and James Johnson. And so that's the problem there. Tyler was often very good in the clutch. He could create his own shot. He shot very well from three-point range. He played defense earnestly despite his size. Um, you know, he, he could... He's not going to guard your bigger wings, but he can handle his own, at least. To me, he's a guy that you can come in for five, ten minutes a game, and, and at least you know what you're getting out of him. I, I think it would be a, a good lineup. I think he, he knows how to play alongside Goron. He can handle the ball. You know, He's not a typical catch-and-shoot type player, but he can have that, too. He can also pull up, and he can get to the rim, and he can, you know, he can dunk at a pretty high level there. He wasn't part of the plan in Phoenix, not because of his own skill set or anything like that, but just because he's not the future there, and he was getting paid too much, so they bought him out. I think it's a fine move. I wouldn't be opposed to that at all. As far as other buyout candidates are concerned, if you're looking at a big, 
probably the only other name that might be on the market and isn't right now is Bismack Biombo and at his age and his limitations defensively look I mean he can defend at a pretty okay level but I don't know that you want to take that chance there um, you know obviously you wouldn't wind up paying him a lot but there's no real reason to bring him on board I think you'd want somebody else somebody different and there just aren't a lot of good options right now I, I mean the Morris twins having signed with each LA team respectively you know Markeith with the Lakers and Marcus with the Clippers those were fine acquisitions whatever I, I don't know I would not have wanted either of them on this heat roster for personal reasons they're fine players at least they, some of them are contrib- they're contributing as of now so far so We'll see what it's like in the playoffs. I, I don't know that there are a lot of options as far as buyout acquisitions are concerned. Either way, Miami still has to move on. Minnesota gets thrown into the rearview mirror, and now you look forward to facing a Dallas Mavericks team with Luka Doncic, one of the best young players in the NBA, and you hope that you can figure it out. They have some matchup problems there with Tim Hardaway Jr., Chris Tapsprazingis at seven foot, you know, a million. Uh, he's a he's not a physical presence despite his height, but he is a sharp passer. He can get to the rim pretty quickly. He is much 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 faster at seven foot four than you would expect, and so he's a threat. And Doncic, well, he's another otherworldly player, and so that's going to be an interesting game when the Heat host the Mavericks on Friday. Uh, this was supposed to be the easy part facing the Timberwolves and. and and the Cavaliers, those were the easy wins, or what were supposed to be the easy wins. So now your work is cut out for you. So they practice on Thursday. Hopefully they'll figure things out a little bit, and then on Friday they host the Mavericks. And that's the first of a double uh, head back-to-back set there where they host the Brooklyn Nets on Saturday. And hopefully by that point Miami will have figured it out. But that's all for now. You can connect with me on Twitter using the hashtag AskLOE. Email me at LockedUpEat at gmail.com. I'm David Ramil signing off, and thanking you as always for your support. Ah! Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 455 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.